welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So I'm going to come at you with three stories this week. First of all, we're going to be talking about Ben Shapiro and his big reversal this week. Then I want to talk about New York and a judge there also regarding vaccines. And then the third story that we're going to wrap up with today isn't really something that happened this week in the news at large, but it's something that I had a personal friend do who I have a lot of respect for or love for, but has is someone who went from very conservative to very liberal, very progressive in her thinking, and she was compelling folks to vote with compassion. So it made me think of what does that mean? And which made me think about the welfare state, which made me think about the United States and how philanthropic we are. So we're going to cover that huge topic in the second half of today's show. So I'm going to try to do a big overview of some of that and bring you some numbers, talk about the poverty gap. It's going to be very interesting, so I suggest you stick around for that. So the first story of the week, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro has long been an enthusiastic advocate for the COVID mRNA vaccines. And he has supported them as a, quote, socially responsible measure, end quote, in order to protect all the grandmas, slow the spread, stop the transmission, all of the things that Pfizer and Moderna and the government, they've all, all the lines that they've pumped out, Shapiro has picked up and has repeated them as, as a good little boy. It's been one of my beefs with Shapiro over the last couple of years. He's double vaxxed, his wife is triple vaxxed, and he has touted these things, in my opinion, ad nauseum, and I, I thought it was, I don't know, I, I just, anyway, I'll just sum it up. It was one of my beefs, one of my big beefs with Shapiro over the last couple of years, and, and I respect a lot of things with Shapiro, but that uh, that was one of the things where I thought he really had a blind spot. But on Tuesday's episode of The Ben Shapiro Show... Shapiro stated, quote, it is now perfectly clear that we were lied to, and we were lied to at a very high level and from very, very early on by both the vaccine companies in terms of the ability of the vaccine to prevent transmission and by our politicians who apparently knew better, end quote. Where did this reversal come from? Well, it comes in part, at least, after Pfizer executive Janine Small stated on October 10th that the company did not know if the COVID mRNA vaccine it had developed with BioNTech would prevent viral transmission before the drug went on the market. So before the drug ever went on the market, Janine Small confessed that they had no idea if it was going to prevent transmission, uh, prevent viral transmission. But they just decided to run with that narrative anyway. And then that was, of course, that preceded an article that was published on October 22nd by the Washington Post, and it suggested that the Biden administration knew back in the summer of 2021 that the vaccines did a far worse job of blocking infection than originally expected as potency waned. Yet they continued to pump out the narrative that these things were going to block infection, they were going to prevent transmission, all of those things. Then in July of this summer, you also had the scarf lady herself, Deborah Burks, who admitted she too knew the COVID-19 vaccines, quote, 
we're not going to protect against infection, end quote, adding that we overplayed the vaccines. So I wanted to give you, I bring all of this up because I wanted to bring you up to speed on those three statements from the Pfizer executive, Deborah Burke, the Washington Post, all of those very briefly, they're very important. They're very important for us to know about the vaccines and the production of these vaccines. Ben Shapiro is also somebody that's highly respected in conservative commentary and in conservative news. And um, he has a big platform and he has a lot of sway and a lot of influence. And so for somebody like him to be saying, hey, wait a minute, um, I was wrong. These guys were wrong. We were lied to. And of course, I don't think he he didn't actually come out and say I was wrong. He just said we were lied to. I believe the lies. Um, he was deceived and he, he shouldn't have trusted them to begin with, but he was deceived and he had good faith in these organizations and in these agencies and he just shouldn't have. But that gets to the big thrust of his, I think, disappointment in that show because it's big deal with all of this. And he's really talking about this for a while now when it comes to COVID-19 has been how these lies undermine the American people's trust in our institutions and experts. And I think that he was Johnny come lately to disbelieving or realizing the truth about the vaccines because it was very hard for him to realize the level with at which we have been lied to from these organizations. Look, <laughs> I don't like the implications of all this either, but let me lay it out for you straight. The American government, our institutions, our agencies, and the American legacy media worked hand in hand to pull one of the greatest deceptions in American history and tens of thousands of people have died because of it and more are coming. There should be criminal prosecutions. Shapiro mentioned that on Tuesday. There should be. The folks who knowingly lied to people about their level of risk from COVID, who separated families, allowed people to die alone and afraid, then withheld safe, reliable medications, and then caused people with little to no risk of dying from COVID, like children, to jeopardize their health with an untrustworthy vaccine that they knowingly lied about. Those folks... They should be drugged into the streets and hung by their necks until dead, and I will—I do not apologize for that. This was a medical experiment, and they used you and your kids as the unwitting test subjects. And I know it's painful and unsettling to admit we can't trust our government nor our institutions, but honestly, we haven't been able to trust them for a long time now. Living in denial is never going to solve the problem. We have to wake up to their deception and then determine to do something about it. And so, yes, criminal prosecutions and then the firing squad. I, I want, I, and I'm not saying we're going to circumvent the legal process. Nope. Go through the whole thing. And those who are found guilty of all the things that I've already mentioned and knowingly causing the death of all of these, I mean, every day, every day, 
I read a headline about somebody else who has dropped dead on a stage, on a football field, on a baseball field, during a gymnastics tournament, you name it. Somebody somebody else is dying because of these things. And these people knew they were not safe. So yeah, I those who knew they should be criminally prosecuted and face the electric chair or whatever it is. Welcome to the party, pal! It's nice to have you on board, Shapiro. I'm glad you have seen the light. One last point about the COVID vaccines on, on this topic. There's a reason they're allowing the truth to rise to the top uh, after all this time. For one, well, there's just too many high-profile people dropping dead or having cardiac events in the public eye. They can't. They ha- they're going to have to come up with some sort of narrative for it. And second, this is what the narrative is going to be. They're going to pin this whole vaccine debacle on Trump. They're going to go back to their pre-Biden inauguration narrative, which was that the vaccines were the most untrustworthy medications known to mankind. They will deny, deny, deny their push for vaccine mandates. That's what I think anyway. And, and Trump and his people better figure out now how they're going to spin this thing because he cannot run for re-election and still be touting these vaccines. Can't do it. Not going to fly. Especially when we've got two more years of people having cardiac arrests, cardiac events, and just what is, it's only picking up speed. I mean, have you guys noticed? It's just picking up speed. These, these early deaths, people dropping dead, it's terrible. Who knows how many we're going to see at the end by the time it's all said and done. While we're talking about vaccines, let's talk about New York City. So New York City terminated over 1,750 public employees for failing to take the jab after an October 2021 order from Health Commissioner David Chosky. 16 former Department of Sanitation workers filed suit after they were fired in February. Their exemption requests having been summarily denied. So they were denied exemptions and they filed suit. But on Tuesday of this week, a New York State Supreme Court judge ordered New York City to reinstate with back pay sanitation workers who were fired for failing to get vaccinated for COVID-19, calling the vaccine mandate, quote, arbitrary and capricious, end quote. So this is Justice Ralph Porcio. He ruled in the former employee's favor primarily because of the city's inconsistent COVID mandates. See, Chosky mandated vaccinations for city employees, then two weeks, two months later, excuse me, for private employees. Then in March, a few months later than that, Mayor Eric Adams issued an exemption for athletes and entertainers. It was this sequence of events that caused Judge Porcio to rule the mandate capricious. He said this, either there is a mandate for all or there is a mandate for none. He also found that the Board of Health does not have the authority to unilaterally and indefinitely change the terms of employment for any agency. He also noted that an employer could not impose a new condition of employment on employees that came under contract before the new condition was added. Porcio made clear that Chosky doesn't have the authority to enact permanent conditions due to a temporary state of emergency. Porzio further highlighted personal responsibility and the vaccine's inability to stop people from transmitting or contracting COVID. 
As Michael Tennant wrote in his article for The New American, unfortunately for the ex-employees, the New York Supreme Court, despite its name, is not the highest court in the state. A spokesman for the city law department said the department had already filed an appeal of Porcio's decision for the former sanitation workers, adding that the mandate remains in place for all other city employees. While that's frustrating, before I move on from the story, let me leave you with Porcio's concluding statement and just know that this thing's not done. And I think you're going to see, I mean, now you've got all the city employees could also, uh, they could also file. And then you've got a big debacle happening in New York City. But here's Porcio's concluding statements. The vaccination mandate for city employees was not just about safety and public health. It was about compliance. If it was about safety and public health, unvaccinated workers would have been placed on leave the moment the order was issued. If it was about safety and public health, the health commissioner would have issued citywide mandates for vaccination for all residents. In a city with a nearly 80% vaccination rate, we shouldn't be penalizing the people who showed up to work at great risk for themselves and their families while we were locked down. If it was about safety and public health, no one would be exempt. It is time for the city of New York to do what is right and what is just. End quote. He nailed it. He nailed it. I mean, the whole thing was excellent. But just that concluding statement. It was about compliance. Was it about safety and public health? It should have been universal. If, that, if that's going to be your argument, should have been universal for everybody. Should have been citywide. Should have been for all the residents. We shouldn't be penalizing the folks who risked themselves, took personal responsibility, which is what he highlighted in another area of his opinion. They took personal responsibility and still risked their lives for everyone else so everyone else could stay locked down. So good for this judge. I greatly appreciate him and I'm going to be following him because this and he's also defend, uh, has wrote an opinion in favor of a firefighter that lost his job for the same reason and ruled in his favor. Of course, the firefighters case is, you know, they made an appeal and the city did. And so it's still going through the systems as well. But I greatly appreciated this judge and everything that he said in that opinion. And I wanted you to know it and hear it because he's exactly right. Hey, this is Bob, the producer of this podcast. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know you can always get your questions into us. Ask us anything. Feel free to email me at bob at bobsloan.com, B-O-B at B-O-B-S-L-O-N-E dot com. Or you can always find that information and more in the show notes. Now back to Hannah. All right, so our final topic today, which is a little bit of a big one, but and I'm going to throw some numbers at you, but you guys hang with me because I find it fascinating, and I think you all will as well. When people ask you to vote with compassion this November, let me tell you what they mean by that. They're asking you to vote for someone, to use someone else's money, to do what is the responsibility of the church. Now, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Hannah. <laughs> 
I can, I can, I hear you all out there. And this is what you're thinking. You're, you're saying, you're wondering if I'm telling you that social programs are not the responsibility of the government, but the responsibility of the church. If that's what you're thinking, then yes, you're correct. You have discerned that statement correctly. That voting with, when they, when a, when a progressive or a liberal or a Democrat tells you to vote with compassion, they're asking you to vote for someone to use someone else's money to do what was the responsibility of the church. All right? Which means, and what I mean by that again, is that social programs are not the responsibility of the government, but the responsibility of the church. What do you think happened to the poor and homeless before federal welfare programs? They haven't always existed. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Do you recall reading in history lessons about hundreds of thousands of folks dying of starvation or because they couldn't pay for basic medical care? Progressives would have you believe that if we just cut back on our welfare spending, the slightest just the teeny tiniest bit. The streets would be littered with the bodies of the impoverished and those who couldn't get basic medical care. Seriously, though, will that happen now? If it didn't happen before welfare programs, would it happen now? It's only been since 1935 that we've had welfare programs as they appear in their current form. Before then... Families took the scriptures literally regarding honoring our parents by caring for their elderly or infirm parents. There was a strict adherence to the golden rule, treating others as we would want to be treated, that developed tight communities that came alongside one another when a family fell on hard times. Then, in 1887, the first charity was established, the Charity Organization Society, which became the first United Way. 17 years later, in 1904, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America started helping at-risk youths reach their full potential. Then, nine years after that, in 1913, the American Cancer Society was formed. And, and whatever you may think of their politics, Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller put their millions of dollars behind creating our nation's first philanthropic organizations. In his book, Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote extensively about how Americans love to form all kinds of non-governmental associations designed to serve the public good and improve the quality of human lives. And in an article he wrote in 2018, Walter E. Williams said, quote, generosity has always been a part of the American genome, end quote. And per usual, Williams was right. And, and, and I'm going to defend that statement. And I'm going to say that that generosity isn't gone. Just, just look at what happens after a national disaster here in the United States. Average Americans from coast to coast head to the front lines. I mean, the interstates will be flooded with trucks, boats, farm equipment, hay, food, water, whatever extra items Americans have on hand that can be of use. They find a way to get to the area that's been afflicted. 
GoFundMes are started. Churches send disaster relief teams equipped with chainsaws, sump pumps, and willing hands. Did you know that less than a decade after Hurricane Katrina wiped out every one of its miserable public schools, New Orleans had an entirely new 100% charter school system in place that allowed the city's students to almost entirely catch up with the performance of students in the rest of the state for the first time in the state's history? Did you know it was entirely philanthropic individuals who rebuilt that school system? Did you know that? Did you know that? Here's another thing. The Almanac of American Philanthropy was published in 2016 by Nonprofit Philanthropy Roundtable. And the bottom line of their research is that Americans are the most generous people in the world. I mean, I I didn't need their publishment to tell me that. I kind of deduced that just from looking around after natural disasters, when bad things happen, the amount of money that I see people give to GoFundMes and that kind of thing. But here's some hard data for us to kind of chew on regarding this. The year the Almanac was published, 2016, American giving by individuals, foundations, and businesses surpassed $360 billion. In 2020, Charitable giving was over $471 billion, and last year, it was over $484 billion. Rates of giving are between 2 to 20 times higher in the U.S. than in comparable nations. So in countries all around the world, and teachers and students here in the United States that denigrate us every day, for being terrible people, they, they need to hear these numbers. And they need to know that these countries that they laud over in Europe and elsewhere, they don't give near what the United States does. And I'm talking about comparable nations. I'm talking about percentages here. I'm talking about rates. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not looking, I'm not looking at nations and saying, obviously we have, you know, are a large population, and Sweden is only, I think, like 10 million people. Of course, they don't give as much as we do, but their rate, these these other countries don't have the same percentages of giving, the same rates as giving. So there's a difference there, and it has been differentiated when I give these numbers. So I can hear you. The question is, am I trying to say American charities in giving could adequately fulfill our welfare needs? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. And let me back that up with a little bit more information. The U.S. government budgeted just over $847 billion for the welfare state in fiscal year 2020. But let's consider something called the poverty gap. Now hang with me here and I'll sum it all up so it all comes together. According to the economist Bob Pfeiffer, behind, and he's the man, the brain behind the federal safety net, which is a website you can find at federalsafetynet.com. He said this, quote, The poverty gap is the annual income necessary to move an individual or family out of poverty. The U.S. poverty gap for all people in a poverty status totaled $170 billion for 2020. That was calculated from Census Bureau Poverty Statistics, and he's got all the links on his website. He went on to say the poverty gap is equal to the shortfall between the poverty threshold and the income of the individual or family. For example, 
a family of four with an annual household income of $20,000 is $6,496 below the poverty threshold of $26,496. Therefore, the family is considered to be in poverty, and $6,496 is the poverty gap. Now keep hanging on with me, okay? The U.S. Census Bureau reports that in 2020, there were 7,294,000 families and 11,016,000 individuals in America with income below the poverty threshold. The Bureau reports that these families were in an average of $11,318 and the individuals $7,802 shy of the poverty threshold. Therefore, the poverty gap for the nation as a whole in 2020 totaled $170 billion. Now, I wanted to give you all those numbers. So if you want to fact check me, you can, but I encourage you to begin following the Federal Safety Net website yourself because there's a lot of good information on there. But let me tie all those numbers up because it's, it's it may not be terms that everybody's familiar with, and it's a lot of numbers for me to throw at you as well. According to all of those numbers that I just gave you and all of the data that's on his website from Pfeiffer, overall, federal, state, and local governments spent $1.099 trillion on poverty programs in the fiscal year 2020, including Medicaid. This is almost seven times the poverty gap of $170 billion in 2020. So you get what I'm saying? So the gap to help move folks out of poverty is the income necessary to move a family or an individual out of poverty to bridge that gap for them. The total number is $170 billion. And did you hear? We spent $1.099 trillion on poverty programs, and that's including Medicaid. Seven times the poverty gap. So let me ask you this question. Could Americans cover $170 billion in poverty needs and medical bills? Could the most generous country in the world that already gives almost three times that number, three times $170 billion, of their own free will, could they cover $170 billion? Sure we could. With some change left over to build a few bridges and roads, I'll bet. But we have to cover that another day. That's another topic. So if anyone tries to prey on your sense of compassion this voting season, just remind yourself, the government is a terrible dispenser of compassion. Instead, vote for folks who want you to keep your money and who believe in a small, limited government. Because when those two things happen, America will thrive and poverty will plummet. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com. 